Hey, hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Angle on Producers, the show where I shine a light on producers from all corners of the entertainment industry to understand who they are and why they do what they do. As always, I'm your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. However you found the show, I am so grateful you are here tuning in episode after episode doing this life thing with me. It is a two-way street, a two-way conversation. It does not happen without you. I am so grateful for your continued support. This week on the show, we are joined by a legend of the indie film scene, the one and only Christine Vachon. She is an independent Spirit Award and Gotham Award winner, and really an all-around badass. I mean, the OG badass, if you ask me. In 1995, she co-founded the indie powerhouse Killer Films with her partner Pamela Koffler, Those of us who have been curious about producing most certainly have seen or read her books, Shooting to Kill and A Killer Life. Over the past two decades, they have produced over 100 films, including some of the most celebrated American indie features, such as Carol, Far From Heaven, Still Alice, Boys Don't Cry, One Hour Photo, Kids, Hedwig and the Angry Inch, Velvet Goldmine, and I'm Not There. Her highly lauded career spans 30-plus years, and she continues to churn out zeitgeist-shifting films at every turn, such as A24 summer release Zola. Directed by Janixa Bravo, the film follows a stripper named Zola, played by Taylor Page, as she embarks on a wild road trip to Florida. A self-proclaimed pragmatist, opportunist, and hustler, Christine possesses that special alchemy of an inherent producer— In this special episode, we discuss her enduring relationships with partners Pamela Koffler and director Todd Haynes, how to sustain a life as an independent producer, and the importance of not dwelling on the what could have beens, but instead to look to the what could be's. She is a well of wisdom. So without further ado, let's dive in and hear from Christine. I mean, anyone who Googles you, uh, you know, can find a ton about how you started and obviously your work with Todd Haynes and every everything that's kind of gotten you on the path. And so I want to just skip ahead a little bit since that is information that is so easily f- Googleable and ask, you said in your book, A Killer Life in 2006, you called producing the best job in the world, right? So I'm curious with over 100 films and 30 years later, do you still feel that way? I mean, it's the best job in the world for me, you yeah. know, but I, I still, I mean, look, even, even during this, you know, insane time, um, I feel like I was able to stay engaged uh, in terms of, you know, in, in across the board in all different kinds of storytelling. We actually shot, we finished shooting um, a mini series for Netflix. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. October through December. Austin, right? Yeah. Austin. Austin. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I can't say that's the most, it's the, it's, it's not that much fun to shoot during yeah. COVID, yeah. but I'm also very grateful that obviously that we did get to make something and got to employ a lot of people, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I, it's still the best job for me. Yeah. That's good. And so how has, not that we're on the other side of the pandemic, but I feel like a year after sort of everything blew up. We all seem to have a little perspective on it now. I'm curious how that last year, how maybe it redefined things for you, if it did at all in your life as a producer and the kind of art you still want to create. I mean, you've done so much. So, right. I mean, that's the million dollar question, I think, is uh, what, um, what kind of stories are people what kind of stories do we want to tell? What kind of stories do we want to see? Are they the same thing? You know, there's vast swings between nobody wants to be depressed. Everything has to be happy. Don't put the pandemic in your show. No one wants to see that. And then like, no, we need to process. We need to process what we just went through. Um, I want to see things that, that move me. I want to see things that, that make me, that make me cry, that really allow me some release. And then, you know, I want to see things that aren't about my world possibly, you know, I want to, I want to get out of this, like these, whatever our four walls are. 
So I think that's a big question. I think that the sort of recalibration that's happened in terms of like office space, do we, what, what is that? Uh, what is that now? What are we, are we still going to have offices? Are we, I felt like there was a palpable shift in, in the pandemic of like, we can all work from home. This is great to, oh my God, this is terrible. <laughs> like I've got to get back to a place where I can separate my home uh, from my work life and where I can have camaraderie, where yeah. I can share ideas with a colleague who's right there instead of having to call them and, and or find them or what have you. So, um, but I do think that uh, offices are going to be rethought in terms of what we actually use them for. What's kind of coming to the forefront maybe is, um, you know, what what is the purpose of an office? I mean, one thing that I said to my partner, Pam Koffler, mm -hmm. uh, the other day was, you know, it's really hard to mentor somebody if you can't be there with them. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just, you know, we've had interns, you know, summer interns this past summer who I never even met. And, you know, we tried to give them as good an experience as possible, but, um, but there's something about just being able to, you know, share space with somebody, real space, not virtual space. So, so that's a big question. And then of course there's shooting itself. Like, are, are we going to have some version of these protocols in place, you know, for the foreseeable future? And um, how is that going to affect our, our, uh, how we, the mechanics of set life? You know, I mean, the big thing, of course, that I, and I, you know, um, I'm sure you've heard this from anyone who's shot during this, is how limited the number of people on set is and, or are. Uh, so, uh, and, um, you know, some directors have confessed to me that they actually like that. They actually like, you know, they don't like wearing the mask and the face shield and the goggles. And, you know, they, but they do like that the set becomes very, very small and mm -hmm. that there is, you know, you just, you're just very focused on the task at hand. Yeah, there's an intimacy that I think is akin to sort of, I would venture to say the beginnings of most filmmakers where you got to just be you and a sound person and a DP in a room with your actors right. telling a story. And I think when production is production, no, how, no matter how large the scope is of the story, but I can I can see how a lot of people who get into the game want to preserve that sense of connection with the talent. And when everybody's just hanging around eating snacks, like watching it, it, it creates a very different work experience. Yeah. I, I totally get that. And I, I, you know, it, I don't disagree, but as the, the person who does love to observe and so much of my own knowledge that I've gained has come just from being a, a little sure. sponge in these moments when I was coming up. I, I totally get both sides of that coin. And I, I wonder if there's a world where you can, in the same way that we do close sets for certain very intimate scenes, I wonder if there can be different scenes that can exist, different days of filming that can be structured to allow observation and some that just you cannot, right? I, I it could know. be one way of working. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I think like one of the the great things about our industry is that if anybody can pivot cre creatively quickly and find solutions, it's us, even though it sucks and, and it's not comfortable. Um, yeah. Right. Like to your point, I think production right now, I just, the added layers of stress and complication, I just don't know how it's conducive to the creative process overall, but we're in the middle of this experiment, you know, we'll see, I think people are going to do their best and we're going to get some really interesting art <laughs> in this time that we're in. And so it's sort of our dark ages-ish. Um, and thank God we have memes to get us through. You know, at least at least we have that. But but so I want to ask you, you know, you've been now in the business for, for three decades, uh, starting with pre-Todd Haynes. But in 1991, the, his first film, Poison, won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance. And now it's been 30 years since you, you have this badge, right, that sort of launched you into the stratosphere as a producer. How... At that time, like reaching that level of success as an indie filmmaker, which we one could argue is like the highest achievement right at that time, how did that inform you to start your path not 
creating that internal expectation for yourself that, okay, well, I guess every other film I do has to, has to exist at this level. Did you feel the stresses of that? No, I mean, I was very young and, and the fact was, you know, I mean, Sundance was barely Sundance. True. So it's not like I, it's not like it had been a personal dream of mine. I probably heard about the festival for the first time just like a couple years before I actually went to Sundance with my own short film. Mm -hmm. um, One of the first years that it was in park city, because before that it was actually in Sundance. Right. You know, yeah. Yeah. At the resort. Right. Um, And it was called either the U S film festival or the USA film festival. I can't remember. It wasn't called Sundance to start with. Mm. Um, So, you know, uh, it was very exciting. I felt much more compelled about the idea. Or let me let me step back for a second. It's it's really important to uh, to note that um, that we discovered with Poison and then with with Swoon with uh, with Go Fish. We discovered that if you made a film, a queer film, and made it really for that audience without really thinking about, you know, uh, a a straight audience, for example, and if you made it for the right amount of money, it could make its money back. Mm -hmm. And that was incredibly empowering. Um, And so what I was really obsessed with at that time was figuring out how to make my films in a way, how to produce films that could make their money back. Um, and uh, because I thought, well, then we'll get to keep making them, you know? Yeah. So that was really, that that's what was really in my mind. And I guess I don't mean that in a like, oh, I'm only going to get behind movies that I think will make money. It was much more complicated than that. It was more like, um, I want to get behind movies that I feel will um, will make sense for people to invest in. Mm. So it wasn't like because Sundance didn't mean what it's become to mean, right? Like the accolades that come and the the spotlight that gets put on you. It meant a lot. Yeah, I think that like now, you know, now the uh, arguably, you know, most many people know what Sundance is. At the time, it was. Mm-hmm. It felt a lot more insidery and, and, mm-hmm. you know, um, but look, I feel like, of you know, Sundance has done a sort of remarkable job uh, over the past, you know, I don't know how old they are now. Uh, 35, 40 years old. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. I think, I think since the seventies, right. They, when they launched seventies, eighties, maybe 80, 80 something. Yeah. 80 something. Um, but they've done a remarkable job of sort of staying true to their commitment. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, people, you know, will make, make fun of that, but I think it's pretty admirable. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I guess there was no feeling for you as a producer coming out the gate. And, and even though Sundance was still, was a big deal, not maybe to the point that it, it is now a worldwide f- feeling right. phenomenon. Right. But like you didn't feel this pressure of like, Oh shit, I just kind of lucked out and my first big project out the gate has all of this attention on it. I now have to keep producing at this level. How do I do that? You just then, it sounds like you just shifted to how do I create this as a sustainable model to keep telling these kind of stories that can yeah. find an audience and make money. And I mean, I, I think too, the other thing that is fascinating, right, is is we are in an industry built on relationships. And we were sort of talking about this idea of like community and collaboration. And then you have to be around people ultimately at some point to do the job and to create these relationships. And you have enduring relationships, obviously, with Todd Haynes and Pamela Koffler. Talk about what was it about them at that time that you saw them and you said, those are my people? Because I often find, especially nowadays coming up, like there's so many people and now your access is worldwide with the internet, right? So it can create this this feeling of, how do you find your tribe? How do you find your people? First of all, as a producer looking, you know, for uh, for directors that, that they want to work with, that's really just about, you know, 
having good taste and being able to spot talent, you know, early on. I mean, you know, Todd Haynes made a film called Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story Mm -hmm. that I didn't produce, although I did help him with it, but I'm often credited with producing it. Um, And uh, when I saw that film, it it really had an epiphany, um, which was, you know, that's it. That's the kind of film I want to be involved in. It's, um, it's wholly original. It's provocative, but it also is um, extraordinarily entertaining. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I really, at that point, just sort of, you know, said to Todd, like, I'm all in and I, you know, wanted whatever you want to do, I want to do it too. Yeah. So, um, so, and with Pam Koffler, you know, she started out line producing for us. Mm-hmm. And um, we had this great year where we produced three films, one right after another. And the three films were Kids, I Shot Andy Warhol, and um, uh, uh, Stonewall. We did one, rolled over to the next, rolled over to the next. And so it kind of gave us a year of stability um, to actually kind of like we had an office that we had for the whole, you know, usually, you know, in a movie, yeah. you pack up your office Absolutely. and off you go. And then the next movie comes along and you open up a new one. But we had the same office for a year. We um, we ha- were working with some of the same people. And so we started to actually develop a little. Like we mm-hmm. started being like, you know, people would drop off a script and see if we were interested in it. And, and during that time, it sort of gave us a little bit of breathing room and to think to think about the ways in which Pam and I worked together. And it just started to become very clear that um, that we had different enough skill sets uh, that, that a partnership made sense. Yeah. I think we also just are like, you know, by nature, both of us are, are, are extremely loyal and we've right. had we've had our ups and downs, you know, as any partnership does, but it never occurred to us during those ups and downs that the solution was to dissolve. Right. You know, so that's, and now, you know, it's sort of like, it's, it's one of those, like, you know, I don't think, I I mean, she's usually my first call every morning Mm -hmm. uh, or I'm hers. Um, And, um, you know, it's, it's, one of the it's one of the greatest things you know one of my greatest achievements is that yeah yeah and and it's why i ask about it because i think like i said in this time we're in it feels so transient and it feels like fomo and the next shiny new thing people seem to uh loyalty doesn't seem to be as a priority as i think it should be and i think it's changing with the shift of priorities but as someone who has not not just with your producing partner but then with a creative right with the filmmaker and Todd Haynes like over three decades of like you said the ups and downs of projects and and failures and heartbreak and personal stuff that always gets in the way like to still sustain that 30 years later mm-hmm. is it yeah. is it wonderful accomplishment akin to the 100 plus films you've produced and so for those that are looking to find their Todd and their Pamela, what, what is that thing that they should be looking for? You know, it's one of those things that's really like, you know it when you find it. You yeah. Know? I mean, I guess for a director, it's not only are you looking for a director whose vision you feel like you can really get behind, but somebody who you feel like you can be added value to, you know, it's like, I, at this point, Todd knows that I have his back um, in a way that allows him to really do his best work. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. And I can pre, you know, it's almost like, uh, <laughs> you know, like I can, I can tell almost immediately this will work for him in that world. Yeah. Like, like this, this will not be a situation that, that he'll thrive in or this will be, you know, mm. in terms of potential, uh, other collaborators in terms of, you know, location, like just kind of the whole picture. The whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, coming up looking for those people, right. I shared my own experience as an example of a lot of broken hearts and it's, it's very similar to dating, right. Cause essentially you're in a marriage with a creative partnership, a business sure. with these people. And we all want to find our, our right hand, our 
core group of collaborators that are forever. But I had a lot of heartbreaks of thinking I had found those people and being very authentic and sort of giving of myself and my heart, even though at that time you're still learning, right? In my early twenties, I was still figuring shit out. And that got taken advantage of quite often, you know, where I would help develop something. And at the time it would be like a short film that I was helping put together. And the moment we got the script to a place that was good, the moment it was great, then that filmmaker would take the script to the manager and the manager's like, great, let's get an A-list and let's take this to a different producer. And it's, and you get left behind. And after so many of those blows, right, it's really challenging to still keep getting up. And so like, obviously now 30 years later, you've built this trust where that's it's secondhand. Right. But, but in the beginning, I, I wonder if, if maybe you did have some of these false starts with some people that don't make it into your books, you know, who, who kind of don't matter anymore, but Very well may have, I mean, yeah. you know, look, there's, there's, there's certainly projects that I felt we had, um, you know, put our, our, our handprints on yeah, and that got taken away from us and taken to bigger producers that that certainly happened, but you know, you develop a very thick skin and yeah. I were very prolific. I think producers sort of have to be right. I mean, look, you know, that, that report just came out from dear producer about how mm-hmm. unsustainable uh, yes. producing is. And, exactly. Um, <laughs> And, you know, it's really, it's, it's, it's depressing. It's really like, like, but I also feel like there's a, you have to think like an entrepreneur and you have to constantly be seeking opportunity Mm -hmm. in, you know, uh, um, you know, right now, you know, right now there's got to be opportunity in this disruption. Disruption brings opportunity, even while it destroys some, it brings some and, um, and, you know, figuring out your way through to finding that opportunity is almost, it's almost like a whole other layer to, you know, there's, there's development, there's physical production, there's, um, you know, creative production, etc. But there's that whole other piece, which I don't know if people are really, you know, if, if people are really, teaching or if you really can I mean I know somebody who said producing can be learned but it can't be taught Mm. and I've always thought that that I was like yeah that's kind of what I'm getting at yeah when when I you know tell kids not to bother with film school although I run an MFA program yeah which tries very hard to if it can't teach it it tries to model it Right. And model it as effectively as possible. And do you feel like it's been successful? Yes, I do. I mean, I feel it's also an affordable MFA program. Yeah. Um, so I think that makes a giant difference. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that what we've tried to do is create uh, as many experiences for our MFAs where they get <clears throat> in close proximity now, virtually, of course, with in- industry professionals. Yeah in ways that are sometimes overwhelming, like a ton of information and a ton of different points of view, but to me kind of mirrors the chaos. Right. Because, you know, things change so quickly. You find yourself, I found myself on phone calls sometimes not having any clue what people were talking about. Yeah. You know, when I first delved into the world of foreign sales, I could, it took me, you know, I could barely understand, you know, what it meant to buy a territory, you know, Um, and what that, what that money was against Mm. and how people got it back and all of that stuff that just seems like old hat to me now. Right. Sometimes it's that kind of, you know, uh, bombardment that helps you figure out what, you know, yeah. what the world really is. Yeah. A couple of thoughts on that. I think having done over 50 of these incredible conversations now, the one thing I've learned is that to your point, like there is a certain DNA of the kind of person that is drawn to this line of work that is drawn to this business that is drawn to independent producing specifically versus the people that go up some of the other tracks that to your point, isn't something that can be taught. Either you're wired for it or you're not. And even in my sort of coming up and having people under me who had that hunger, there's, there's still that 
the same way that I think stars have that je ne sais quoi quality, I feel like producers also have that thing that is just they're wild enough to believe that they can make the impossible possible. I don't know. And they find a way um, time and time again, you know. So yeah, like you can pick up a book and learn a lot of stuff. You can even be on set, but it really just, it really isn't for everybody. And one of my questions was about the financial aspect of this, because that was one of the things, right? That misconceptions about producers is that we're all rich and we're all making all the money and all we do is hang out with celebrities. And you, you know, you have like your great example from your book with one hour photo that made millions and millions and you don't ever see any of that back end. And that example has not changed since that time, you know, it's still very much the case. And so I've often wondered, how does one sustain a life? How does one create longevity in this business as an independent film producer financially? And obviously, you having been in it for now as long as you have, I'm curious how you've navigated that for yourself because you're still here. You're still still at it. <laughs> no, I mean, I guess, you know, some of it's luck. Some yeah. of it is, you know, there's a lot of right place, right time, mm-hmm. you know, that... Uh, you know, some of it is is simply naivete. Like, uh, you know, I think sometimes when you don't know, it's hard. Um, right. You know, you, you're a little bit more fearless, and and um, you know, uh, it's it, it's it's a difficult question. I think being prolific, being flexible. I think really, you know, never saying oh, we'll never do X, Y, or Z. You know, it's, I, I was at Sundance Producers Conference, which took place then in the summer, um, many, many years ago, when the Blair Witch Project uh, opened to giant numbers on mm-hmm. like a Friday night. And so it was Saturday morning and everyone was looking at, you know, uh, was looking at the numbers, getting the box office reports, probably by fax, probably that long ago. <laughs> and Blair Witch was um, was uh, the first digital film to, you know, do something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember being on a panel with a bunch of producers who all took a very, you know, lofty, well, that's not film. That's not filmmaking. That's not, you know, I would never do that. Mm. Their first impulse was to preserve the old instead of to embrace the new. And I think you gotta, you gotta embrace the new. That said, I probably make more movies on film than any other producer because our directors (laughs) keep insisting on it. But uh, but I, I think that Killer has always tried very hard like, oh, okay, that's a new way to do things. Like, how yeah. do you jump into it? Yeah. You know? What What is it about you, you think, that you've you've molded yourself into this very pragmatic person? You seem like, seems like you're not tethered to identities that maybe you've had in the past, to accolades or to labels people have given you, right? Like, now you call yourself a content producer. You're not married to, no, I'm a this producer and I will only... Like, you are just... You seem to just be always rolling with the punches and like you said, just growing with the times and and not getting too caught up on how things were because there's always a new school of thought. What is it about you? You think that just keeps you that flexible? I don't know. I mean, you know, it's not conscious. You don't think, I think it's just, you know, uh, uh, I'm an opportunist. Um, uh, I'm, I'm pragmatic. I'm an opportunist. I'm a bit of a hustler. Uh, you know, um, I just, I like, I, I, I like things to feel, I like, I like to not repeat experiences, you know? I like it when a movie teaches me something new or a TV series teaches me something new. I used to say <laughs> yeah. the great thing about, you know, filmmaking is you always learn something you didn't know you had to know and that you'll never need to know again. So, uh, and, you know, you go down some rabbit hole so that a director, you know, so right. you can figure out, you know, how to make an animal do something or, yeah. or, 
uh, yeah, how, it's to, very how true. to make that um, You mentioned earlier we were talking about and then, and uncertainty, then right? This again. idea of uncertainty in the business. And there's a great quote from your book where you say, that people have this fear, right? That admitting uncertainty means admit, admitting weakness. And I'm I'm curious, how does one combat that fear in an industry that's built on perception most of the time? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean... I would say most successful first-time directors are successful mm-hmm. because they know what they don't know and, you know, surround themselves with people who do know what they don't know. Um, I That's in a way sort of one of the high compliments that Pam and I will pay to, you know, if there's a director that we mm-hmm. want to work with, well, you know, who's who doesn't have a ton of experience, we'll say, you know, oh, they know what they, you know, they, they, they aren't afraid to say what they don't know. So, um, I mean, it's, you know, I, I don't live in LA, you know, and I, I think one of the things that's great about living in New York is it's not a company town or, you know, some people would say, oh, yes, it is. It's finance, but it's not my company town. Um, and, uh, I will meet people at, you know, back when there were dinner parties or parties <laughs> who like, I'll, they'll ask me what I do. And when I tell them, they'll say, Oh, I haven't seen a movie in five years. You know? <laughs> or they'll say, have you done anything I've ever heard of? And I'll say, well, you know, still Alice won an Oscar and they'll go, hmm, no, I've never heard of it. You know, it's just yeah. like, like it, you, it keeps you kind of like, well, you know, um, there's a lot of people doing a lot of different things. And, um, you know, if I lived in LA, uh, I think I'd be probably a lot more aware of what was happening in the industry that I was or wasn't a part of. A lot of producers, myself included, have been victim, right, to getting affected by comparison. And, and like you finish a thing you've invested your whole life in for months, for years, you finish the thing and the industry's like, good job. What's the next thing? And you're like, holy shit, like I just barely like I'm getting my bearings after devoting all of myself to this one thing. And it it can kind of just really wear you down, right, to continue the, the grind of it. Does, has that ever impacted you? I mean, that's like a ask me 20 years ago question. Yeah. You know I mean, it's like now at my, you know, my level of experience and, and my age, I just don't, I just don't think about it. Yeah. You know, I look, if there's a competitive situation and this happens to us all the time and a director goes with a different producer, you know, I, I'm upset. I get, you know, I'm angry. Um, uh, for five minutes. Right. And then I usually say to them and mean it, come back to us, you know, come back to us if it doesn't work out or come back to us with the next one. Yeah. And, and good luck. And, um, you know, I mean, there's certain producers who just are, have, have, you know, backing money behind them. That's eclipses what we have. And the fact that they can, you know, go out and, and really snatch something away from us is, you know, it's, it's a drag. But some people could say that about me. Right. You know? right, right. Sure, I've, I've taken, you know, projects away from people who, um, you know, were, uh, who were as, as enthusiastic as I was about them. It's just part of the, it's, it's part of the business. You've, you've also said that, you know, you, you don't often look back and feel nostalgic about the work you've done. You rarely go back and to look at your films unless you're looking for a department head's name that you worked with. So w- how do you then stay constant, like focus on the present and what's here now, but also constantly thinking ahead? Like every producer I know who's successful has to find that balance for themselves of like today, the present, this is all you can control, but having forward momentum. You know, I think we just, we've got a pretty big slate. And I think every day it's a question of like, what can I do to advance this project forward? You know, is it a call to an agent? Is it, yeah. is it 
doing notes? Is it, um, uh, is it, you know, doing a list of department, potential department heads? It's just very, you know, it's very pragmatic. It's just like, what, well, I mean, one of the things we talk about a lot uh, when we are trying to figure out whether to get behind a project or not is this whole notion of makeability. What makes something makeable, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and uh, it's kind of, it's, um, it's sort of a, a combination of the story itself, uh, or the story, the script, whatever the um, the filmmaker, uh, the potential for 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 talent to attach, and this whole notion of like, is it something people want to see? And we don't always guess right, um, but we have a pretty good track record of guessing right. Mm-hmm. I mean, still Alice is a good example because that yeah. was. Um, you know, that was based on a best-selling book. So it wasn't like we were pulling some obscure. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but it's, it's, you know, I remember when it was, when we were doing it, mm. people, you know, I would say to people, oh, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're doing a movie on still, oh, that's the Alzheimer's. I can't, I can't see that. And then they would proceed to explain to me why it was too close to them because of hmm. a parent or a, sibling or whatever so you know still Alice is a bummer basically it's like yeah it doesn't end with her getting better right so that was all about you know well a great filmmaking team obviously you know Wash Westmoreland and and Richard Mm -hmm. Glatzer but also and and then of course Julianne but it was also about a performance being as extraordinary as it was um that, you know, would compel people to, you know, give them some sense of urgency of, 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 you know, seeing it. And then also the fact that Alzheimer's has touched everybody. It really has. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to find somebody who doesn't at least say, you know, my friend or, but, and usually it's like, you know, my, my, my wife, my, my grandfather, my whatever. So, so those two things gave us the sense like this is makeable and sellable, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right. Like I, I watched that film and it still re- very much resonates with me, even though I actually have not been personally affected by Alzheimer's yet in Knock on Wood. Right. But, but I am a junkie for the human experience. It's why I'm in this. Like I want to know and be deep on the inside of worlds and experiences that I'll never get to have. Even if I got to live a million lives, I still wouldn't get to do half of the things that we get to experience right through documentaries, through these beautiful narrative films. And so I am one that leans into all of the shit of life. Like I, I'm just, I'm hungry for it. And like it's why I'm here. I remember I would go to see a movie and I would be the person just crying hysterically at the end because I was just so moved by the experience, you know, and I would look to like my dad that I went to see a movie with and he's like, yeah, so she dies. That sucks. And it just, which is like, of course, a very (laughs) pragmatic sort of like encapsulation of the experience. But I just would physically not even be able to move for a while because that's how much I felt, you know? And I would remember walking down the steps and thinking, wow, like I want to create the kind of work that makes someone feel like that one day. It doesn't have to be this depressing, sinking feeling because of an experience. It can be through laughter. It can be through whatever means necessary. But to make people feel something and have a reaction, like period, I think that's that's why we get to do this work, right? And, and I, I also think that things find people when they're ready as well. I think that's the beauty of films existing in a, in a capsule that is there to be discovered whenever versus live performance, which is a very collective experience. So um, I want to switch gears a little bit to this idea of self-care, which I ask a lot of my guests about. And I was when I was doing some research on you, I found this really great interview where you talk about that you unwind with procedural shows and you have this mm-hmm. great quote where you said, you know, give me law and order special, special victims unit and a bottle of wine and I'm good. Um, so the questions are what kind of wine is your go-to rose. any kind of rosé or are you bougie like no. me? You know, actually, uh, one thing, um, 
that I have not been able to do since last March, but what I sort of got uh, some internet, more internet notoriety for than producing <laughs> is I started to write uh, reviews of airport lounges, oh. specifically the line. Interesting. So it's not hard to find out quite a bit about the kind of wine I like (laughs) by going through my old social media posts. Yeah. Um, So I like a light Provençal rosé, which is actually, this is the time of year where when it's hardest to find. Yeah. Um, But it will be, you know, coming back within a month or so. Nice. Uh, and uh, yep, that's what I like. Do you have any particular brands or are you just, as, if, as long as it's from that region, you're pretty open to it? It, it depends. I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to uh, name any particular brand, but I like a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> so, and what is it about procedurals that you enjoy, which I think a lot of people will find that fact um, surprising? Um, I think there's something, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a narrative junkie, which I kind of am, um, they sort of, they kind of satisfy that, that, uh, that like, they're like a snack, you know, it's, mm. um, and some of the, you know, some of the plotting on, on, you know, uh, SVU is really quite remarkable. It's not all remarkable, but yeah. some of it, some of it really is. And there's also something about the ability to breathe, life and interest into something that's been around for that many years that I find kind of admirable. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's really remarkable. Yeah, you're right. It's remarkable that it's been around for so long. And not only that, that it's been um, a career starter for a lot of people, you know, a lot of people get their first opportunities on there. It's, it's impressive. Um, (laughs) That's funny about the procedurals. Um, So then, you know, navigating the ups and downs of your careers, it sounds like, it sounds like you've, it seems like from what you're saying, you don't really, you just stay focused in the moment, in the present and looking forward. You don't get too bogged down with the things that maybe don't go so well. You're just kind of over that hump of your career, it sounds like, which is fantastic. Um, I mean, nobody, you know, no one sets out to make a bad movie or a bad show. Yeah. And sometimes things don't turn out as well as you hoped they would. And sometimes the public or the critics don't react the way you wanted them to. Mm. And, um, you know, it's, it's painful every single time, you know, you know, when you worked really hard on something and it doesn't get the reception that you anticipated slash hoped for, um, it never gets easy, you know, but I do, you know, I, because I'm forward looking, it's just like, on to the next and know that, you know, things nowadays, especially they get to have second lives. I mean, when Todd Haynes made safe many million years ago, Mm -hmm. that movie did not get a very strong critical or public reception. It, um, it really, people scratched their heads. They didn't really know what to make of it. Uh, In 2000, the village voice did a, um, poll of all the critics that they could find of what, what was the best movie of the nineties. And it was safe. Interesting. And, uh, and it was really interesting because if those critics had written good reviews of it, then people might've gone to see it. <laughs> yeah. They didn't. So they didn't. So just to say like, sometimes things need to sort of go on that like zeitgeist lazy Susan and come back come back later yeah and, uh, and get rediscovered yeah that's a really good point um so as we wrap up because we are almost at the hour just want to be mindful of your time i have a couple more questions for you um obviously you've had a, an, an incredible career very illustrious and, and lauded career would, would you be able to 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 sort of pick three highlights or is that like a really tall order um, you know, I mean, highlights that are sort of obvious are like the first time I had a film in competition at Cannes, which mm-hmm. was Velvet Goldmine. And, you know, Velvet Goldmine was a game changer for me in a lot of ways because, um, 
you know, it was, it was, I'd never worked on such an ambitious music driven film. And it was, you know, it, it was a real absolute uh, example of like, it's a lot better to go into those things knowing nothing. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, showing Go Fish to mm. an almost all female audience at the London Gay and Lesbian Film Festival. Um, and I just remember the movie ended and there was this moment of silence and then the room just exploded. You know, that was, that was pretty great. Um, you know, taking poison to the Berlin Film Festival and really learning, uh, you know, um, uh, how, how movies worked in an international marketplace. Um, going to the Oscars for the first time, which was actually with Velvet Goldmine, which had been nominated for a costume. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and we went because Sandy Powell was nominated for Shakespeare in Love and Velvet Goldmine. And I said to her, did you get two tickets or four tickets? And she said, oh, I only got two. But then she opened up the envelope and there were four tickets. Yeah. It gave the other two to me and Todd. Um, And, uh, you know, I mean, look, every movie sort of has its, you know, I I, I could switch to, you know, the past few years and easily, you know, showing Zola at the Sundance Film Festival. Yeah, very excited um, for that one. It was just, yeah. you know, uh, and um, which was just extraordinary. And showing Shirley there, too. Mm. You know, I guess the last time I was physically in Sundance. Going to the Venice Film Festival, which I did in September, with the world to come mm. in the middle of the pandemic, Wow, uh, was, um, you know, an experience I'll never forget. Yeah. So that's a few. What do you love most about producing? You know, putting the movie in front of an audience. Yeah, that's the moment for you. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And I mean, so you've done so much. Is What's left for you to accomplish, like in terms of, is there one thing that you're like, one day I still hope to do this? I don't really think that way. Yeah. You know, I I get asked a lot about like what director is on your bucket list. And I don't really, you know it's more when it organically yeah. this is the right project and that's the right director. I mean, we brought a script to Robert Altman and he decided to direct it. And it wasn't like it was my lifelong dream, but it was also an extraordinary experience. He was mm-hmm. the right person for it and he decided to do it and we got to produce his second to last film. Yeah. That's awesome. So you don't have this this secret desire, for example, like one day you want to produce a musical or revive something that maybe. I would say the only thing is I have really been, and we have a couple, you know, project or two in the works. I really want to tell a story about uh, what happened in New York city uh, during the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. Yeah. I lived it. It had a profound effect on my life, yeah. on my career. And I don't feel like I've seen it yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's something that, you know, I, I noodle on a lot. Yeah. You, you've been very transparent, at least in your books, about, you know, how many friends you lost at that time yeah. and how scary that time was. And I think it's true that unless you lived it, it's sort of an era that is just not forgotten about. But to your point, there's only a few movies and all of those movies I don't think from what you're saying really capture what that time was like for most people. Right. I mean, probably the one that I was most scornful of when it came out, but probably really does capture a lot of it was Longtime Companion. Mm. And then of course the first film that I really, the first narrative film I really worked on was Parting Glances. Yeah. um, Which I think also captures it to some degree, but those movies, you know, uh, you know, at the time I felt, they were really about, you know, upper middle class white men. And right. they still are about that. <laughs> um, it's not like they transformed, but uh, but I have more compassion for them now yeah. than I, I did at the time where I thought that was not my world. Yeah. Yeah. And also how the stigmatization of HIV, like my one of my best friends is HIV positive and he's 
not a filmmaker, not in the film business anymore, but he's dedicated his life now to destigmatizing what it means to be a person who's positive and gets to live, you know, a, a, a healthy life. Um, because a lot of people still, when they hear those words, they flash back to that era that was sure. very scary, but, but yeah, how much has changed and how it, it is possible to have sure. a good life, good quality of life now. Um, yeah, that's, that's incredible. I'll definitely be watching from the sidelines as you accomplish that goal. Um, is there one piece of advice you were given early in your career that actually helped you that stuck with you? Honestly, the best piece of advice I think is, is I'm stealing this from now. I forgot his name. The guy who was the manager of the Yankees, uh, Oof. which is just, you know, work hard and be on time. Yeah. You know, um, being on time cannot be overestimated mm, especially, especially nowadays <laughs> and yeah. i it's i tell it to you know new people who are new on set all the time like if you can do that then everything else will fall into place i know right yeah. being late is just the worst it's the worst yeah for sure i agree with that it's 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 really smart simple Simple, but can be hard to do. A lot of people struggle with that. Um, final question for you. Um, what is, do you have a legacy you hope to leave behind? Is well, that I something think you think about? movies, right? Just yeah. Well, besides, so. you, besides of your work, I think just you as Christine Vachon, the producer, you know, the, there, there's killer films and everything you've accomplished with your team there. But I would venture to say that you as the individual producer, you have a legacy of your own and definitely a, a name that you know, I hope so. I mean, I hope, yeah, you know, look, I, you know, some of the things I'm very proud of is I feel, you know, we, we tried, we made an effort to try and not just work with female directors, but also try to bring more women behind the camera too. I mean, mm -hmm. we gave both Mary Salberti and Ellen Curris their first narrative shooting jobs And I'm really, I'm really, really proud of that. Yeah. You know, so, you know, we keep, we just keep trying. Yeah. I mean, that's all any of us can do. Exactly. I just want to thank you for, for being trying for 30 plus years and uh, <laughs> continuing to be an inspiration to, to many and to, I hope, a new generation of filmmakers and producers coming up under me, even that are going to discover you and all the work you've done so far and continue to be inspired by you and everything you've done. So thank you so much for, again, for the time. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Thanks so much for tuning in and doing this live thing with me. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. I'm at Carolina Gropa. You can find the show at angleonproducers.com. Thank you so much for tuning in and I'll see you next week. Beijos.